Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace, a podcast that highlights the role of women peace builders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to communities, eavesdrop on their communities and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy. This is She Talks Peace. Salam, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of She Talks Peace. I am Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, joining you from Manila. And here's my co-host. Hi, everybody. Hi, Amina. This is Ayesa, and I'm based here in Al-Bukhari International University in Alostar, Kadak, Malaysia. Ayesa, how are you? As we're taping, it's Valentine's Day. And you were telling me they don't celebrate Valentine's Day in Malaysia? Well, we don't celebrate Valentine's Day ever as Muslims, Amina. <laughs> but of course, when you were younger, you followed the, you know, the commercialization of Valentine's. <laughs> yeah, but you, but you know what, Ayesa? Valentine's Day really is, I think, an American invention. It's a okay. an attempt to sell cards, chocolates, and gifts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. yesterday, um, uh, my old my my uh, professor when I was in the school of economics, you know him, Mahar Mangahas. Mahar, yes, yes. yeah, Mahar. You know, uh, is his highly respected economist and pollster. I mean, he started the Social Weather Station, which is a very mm-hmm. credible polling institution. And he shared this article with us saying that uh, Valentine's Day is supposedly named after a Catholic uh, saint. And yes. there are two possibilities. And both of those possibilities were murdered. One was beha- beheaded. The other one, I can't remember what happened to him. But they were both killed for their beliefs. Uh-huh. So. What's I that see. got to do? What's that got with to Valentine's? do with Valentine's Day? That's so Valentine's true. Day is not Christian. It's not religious. It's okay. commercial. <laughs> That's true. But the anyway. same thing with the same thing with this idea of uh, proposing, right? For marriage, love diamond is forever. 
You know, I learned from management school before that that's, you know, part of the strategy, branding strategy of the diamonds. Diamonds are forever associated with, you know, marriage proposals. <laughs> the beers. You mean, yeah, like, yes, like exactly. Beers, right? That's the company that started all this campaign. They, yeah. they spend uh, millions and millions of dollars making the connection. Diamonds and the long-lasting love so that people, men especially, have to, you know, <laughs> deep, deep into their pocket <laughs> to buy, <And> buy diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then, Ayesa, um, the fact that they, they started matching your birth month with a uh-huh. uh, right Birthstone. a stone and I, all of these all of these things that uh, commercial people advertisers dream of to make those uh-huh. of us who are gullible into buying uh-huh. diamonds and chocolates. But I don't mind the chocolates, Ayesa. So I don't mind Valentine's <laughs> Day as long as I get really really good chocolates on Valentine's okay. Day. But I was just thinking, you know, uh, relating it to what Mahar Manga has shared about uh, those two saints being murdered for their beliefs. And one of them was really protecting you know, his uh, community, his, um, you know, the believers. And I was mm-hmm. just thinking, maybe there is a connection because you know, that is true love. It's not romantic mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, love for humanity. Real, yeah, very real, genuine love. Love for your community to sacrifice yourself for your community. That's that is pretty amazing, and not that many people we have that uh, that courage. But then we show our love, naman, in so many ways, right? Uh, yes, I mean. You have been with civil society for the longest time, and the amount of time, effort, sweat, tears that you have invested in conflict areas, I think that shows a lot of love, Ayesa. So happy Valentine's Day, Ayesa. <laughs> happy Valentine's Day to you too, Amina. And our guest also shows that kind of love, right? So it should oh, be happy yes. Valentine's Day for her too, right? That's right. Yeah. So shall we bring her over? Shall we yeah. ask her to join us? And then let me give some short introduction. Because I think she is uh, she's already popular enough not to be introduced online. You know, she is a journalist and very much present in the social media. And her name is Jamila Alindogan. Jamila, or should I call her Jam? She's actually an award-winning correspondent today of Al Jazeera, uh, the English version, for the last 15 years. So this is where uh, Jam has been building her uh, career. And she has covered uh, not only the Philippines, but also most parts of Southeast Asia and even as far as Africa. And in fact, in Africa, she has covered this interesting conflict that involved ethno-religious violence in Nigeria. Oh, this is something that we should ask about. We should ask her, you know, about this incident in Nigeria. At the same time, she was also covering uh, Sabah, Malaysia. I think this was in 2013. Maybe she'd like to tell us as well as short story about, 
you know, her coverage in Sabah, Malaysia. And uh, uh, more recently, you know, during the presidency of uh, President Duterte, we had the Philippines, you know, has been very popular because of this drug war, drug war campaign by Duterte. And because of Jamila's coverage on this drug war, she has been honored by the Swedish Foreign Ministry and the UNESCO with an award. And she received this in 2016 in Stockholm. So she is really somebody whom we should be, um, you know, uh, promoting you know, her work. Um, to inspire more younger journalists as well. And in 2018, she was also awarded as one of the 10 Outstanding Young Filipinos, or TOYM, for international journalism. And also, Jam has been elected as president of the Foreign Correspondents Association of the Philippines, and she has been holding this position for the last two terms. So, but what is more important to, uh, or equally rather important to Jam's uh, journalism career is that she is actually uh, a co-founder of the Sinagtala Center for Women and Children in Conflict. This is a group that sends aid to women and children in conflict zones with a focus on war survivors in Mindanao. So this Sinagtala Center is something that we would also like to ask Jam about who knows you know um maybe you amina will be interested to work with her as well you know with this sinagtala center so let us now all welcome to she talks peace jamila alindogan hi jam welcome to she talks peace jam thank you ma'am thank you for the warm welcome my first time here and really grateful to be here and really looking forward to, to our talk, I guess, um, within the next few hours. Thank you po. Maraming salamat po sa mainit na pagtanggap. First things first, uh, Miss Jamila, why were you arrested in Sabah? <laughs> what went on there? Um, interesting. First question. <laughs> well, basically, um, it was at the, at the height of the Lahad Datu um, incursion. There was a standoff. And um, I was sent with my team, that was 2013, to cover. Unfortunately, on the third day, we were arrested by the coastal area somewhere in Lahadatu. And um, it's funny because I was with a lot of Westerners. They were all in my team, but I was the only one sort of detained and interrogated for several hours. I, I, I suppose it was because I was Filipino, and, um, and I think that kind of, um, I guess made them much more curious. So yeah. it, it was it was obvious. I mean, they knew that I've worked a lot in Sulu before that, and I was familiar with um, the issue, the conflict, and they were quite curious about what our role was there. So, so you know, all I did was basically remind them that I was there to do my job, and I had to remind them that that that, that journalists are free to cover conflicts anywhere we go. I think one of the curiosity was that I was the only woman on the boat when we were, we were <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the first question was, what are you doing on a boat with eight men? And I'm um, well, <laughs> <laughs> there to work. So, you know, there was a lot of confusion. It was a very tense period. As you know, a lot of, uh, yes. um, 
there were there were there were a lot of um, deaths and 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 um, displacement, and it was a very tough time even for Filipinos who were in Sabah. So that was it. must be must be a very scary moment for you, Jam. I mean, I could imagine, you know, uh, being arrested and don't really know, you know, how to answer. <laughs> well, that was for me, but because, you know, you're a journalist, of course, you know, you would know how to answer them best. But what drew you in the first place, you know, to do this kind of work, you know, reporting, especially in conflict zones? What attracted you to this kind of work, Jam? Doctor, I think it's not something that you choose. It's something that you're given. Um, I started television at a very young age. At 19 years old, I was a UAAP sportscaster for the UAAP. And it took a while before I managed to... And by saying this, I'm telling you already, you know, the the, the events that led me to working for, for Al Jazeera at the time. But basically, it took me a while to find a job for a local news network. And I ended up working for Al Jazeera. And of course, Al Jazeera's priority is to give voice to the voiceless, to challenge established perceptions, to work in conflict zones, and to shed light on issues that are hardly covered by majority of um, major networks. And so, you know, during this period, as you know, from 2009 to 20, up until, up until recently, there was so much events happening um, in Mindanao, you know, and 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 it was just but normal for me to be there. The bigger question is, kung wala ako doon, bakit wala ka? Diba? We, we must question journalists who don't do these kinds of stories yeah. or who yeah. kind of dare be present on the ground. So yeah. there, there was also that kind of attraction. I needed to know what was going on. I had to know firsthand because I, I believe yeah. also that nothing can replace boots on the ground journalism. Mm-hmm. And, and th- that you have the texture, you can hear the voices, and and just by listening to people on the ground, you can sense how they feel, and you're able mm-hmm. to articulate that to the audience that really sometimes don't really know where the Philippines is on the map. So it felt a lot like a responsibility. I had to be there. There was just no way I'm not going to go to those areas and and tell those stories. And and it was a cycle that ran for for many many yeah. years. Yeah. yeah, I remember watching Amina, I remember watching Jam, Jamila, you know, on, on Al Jazeera News reporting what was going on during the armed clashes in, in Mindanao, whether it's with MILF, MNLF, or any other non-state armed groups. And to some extent, you know, I was really very happy that she I can see her on television. Somehow she reminds me of Christian Amanpour. You know, all these female, you know, journalists who also became famous. So Jamila is our Christian Amanpour in, in the Philippines. So thank you, Jam, for doing, you know, that kind of coverage in your work. Thank you for the gen- that- very, very generous compliment. I grew up watching Christiane and, you know, and I continue to watch her. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I don't even know if, if I would even consider comparing myself even. But she was a huge inspiration when I yeah. was doing my stories. And not only her, Lise Doucette of the BBC were, and she mm-hmm. continues to tell stories um, in the Middle East. Fantastic women who came before me mm-hmm. um, and, and who paved the way for us to make it possible and normalize the idea of female mm-hmm. correspondence mm-hmm. in, the, in the field. Yeah, you are right. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On, on that note, Jam, I've, I've been thinking about how you used to cover uh, conflicts, trying to be balanced about it and trying to dig deep into the story of the community. And I compare it with the coverage, for instance, these days, you know, the last couple of years on conflicts like Ukraine and now Gaza, where you can see the biases creeping in. And I was just wondering, what do you, what do you make of it? What is the obligation of a, of a reporter, uh, a storyteller? Are you allowed to? make a judgment on on what you see? Yes, of course. I mean, I saw this yesterday. Um, uh, Somebody said, truth is never neutral. It's absolutely true. Um, If you are a journalist, you have a responsibility. And for me, this is how it's always been. I have a responsibility to provide the minority perspective. If I have two voices and I have two minutes and 45 to tell a story, and on one side, I have to... uh, provide a couple of minutes to a powerful person who already has the pulpit and the megaphone um, to tell his side of the story. And then I, on the other side, I have to speak to those who have been displaced, indigenous peoples, um, internally displaced persons, women, children, caught up in the conflict or fighting. To me, the always it should be automatic that I should give more space to the minority those who have no voice. And so that should always be what we should always keep in mind. You know, um, any journalist that decides to give more airtime to somebody who's always has the pulpit each and every day, I think is a waste of airtime and, and space. Challenging established perceptions meaning, means also making sure that you, even if it's unpopular, that you give space to ideas that are hardly heard. Gaza is very frustrating. It's yeah. not really the journalist's fault. Um, a lot of journalists have been very vocal about not being allowed by Egypt and Israel to enter Gaza to do that story. So they're very much dependent on local journalists, courageous Palestinian journalists, to tell the stories about what's happening there and at the expense of the world, right? And thankfully, it's been harder and harder to 
mask atrocities committed in Gaza because of social media, because there is a very strong sense of activism among younger people and uh, the ability of the internet basically to propagate, well, unfortunately, both truth and lies. And it's very frustrating because at the, at the, at the onset, we've seen at the start of the conflict, we've seen s- stories, um, propaganda about um, commit atrocities committed by both sides that turned out to be false. That, that even leaders were, were taking on these lies hook, line, and singer, and there was no verification. And it took a while before they said, well, basically, that was propaganda, but that had already spread, right, and created such malicious intent. And, and that actually paved the way for more violence against Muslims um, and, and other civilians in general. So it's frustrating, and we've seen really... Um, the ability of states to repress, continue to repress journalists and to repress minority perspectives from being at the forefront. So for me, um, it's horrific to watch what's happening. Mm-hmm. And our failure as journalists, when we don't speak in behalf of minorities, we are complicit you know, in acts of crimes against humanity, genocide. Mm-hmm. When we choose not to say um, and mm-hmm. call out atrocities for what they truly are, that in itself is being complicit to crimes. And I think we need to remind everyone again and again, and even journalists, that you have a duty to tell the story and to speak out against abuse of power. Yes, uh, Yes. I I think that's why uh, Jamila decided to take a sabbatical from from (laughs) this Over to you, Ayesa. I, I guess, you know, Jam must be cringing every time she reads the news from Gaza, right? What's happening now in the Middle East, you know? <laughs> it's sad. She couldn't resist. We're talking about thousands and thousands of children, right? Mm-hmm. Women and children caught up in the fighting they really had little to do with. Everybody mm-hmm. deserves to grow old. And this is what, you know, I was watching. My son caught me watching the news. And obviously when it comes to mm-hmm. the Middle East, I watch Al Jazeera, even if I'm on a sabbatical already. For the record, I'm no longer the correspondent. I took a sabbatical last year to take my master's in Europe. Um, but my son, who's nine, saw me watching and he goes to me, what's happening? And I said, just so you know, everyone deserves to grow old. And even children mm-hmm. in Palestine, in Mindanao, in Myanmar, in Ukraine, this is not what we should not be deprived of. And so it's been frustrating as a mother. You don't have to be a journalist to be horrified uh, with what we're seeing. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the worst of times and the best, perhaps, of times because there's also a pushback, right? Um, there is also light somehow that we're seeing. We're seeing that there is a pushback from other countries. South Africa um, has mm-hmm. taken Israel to the ICJ, right? And and I guess somebody said, I read it somewhere, that South Africa has earned its name among the stars. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I go into more geopolitical issues now. I think that during periods like this, when there is a question about social order and the way power structures are, it's not necessarily very bad because it forces those in power to question where they are and the stands and the positions they've been taken. And so there's a real question about moral leadership and it's time for a real assessment. And we take the majorities, take them, um, you know, into account, hold them into account for, for the, the decisions that they make in our behalf. So it's frustrating, mm-hmm. put it mildly. Yeah. Jam, I, uh, we all know, you know, how very influential media can be. You know, in terms of uh, promoting social change and advocacy. But in your uh, experience, 
you know, being uh, with Al Jazeera for so many years and telling all these very important stories. Were there, you know, specific times or coverage, the kind of coverage that you see it really happening that you are able to promote social change? Um, that's a very difficult question because, you know, journalism, I think, is a slow burn. Sometimes when you cover a conflict and you randomly interview uh, a woman who's lost his home and I put it on social media and he's cry- she's crying looking for her family, and all of a sudden the family messages me and then responds and says, that's my mother, and that I'm able to connect her to her family, I think that's that's one of those sweet deal- deals about being a journalist, you know, when you see that impact. But in general, it's hard to really assess the impact, both the positive and the negative impact of, of what we do, right? Because again, it's like climate change. You don't see that impact overnight. Yeah, there, rather you see a gradual development um, that, that, that happens within the industry as well, right? Network ownership, funding, training, journalist safety. That's something that, that happens. So there's a lot of there's a lot of instances, especially the last 15 years, 16 years, I guess, especially in the Philippines, that really kind of think, okay, is this really making a difference? Am I just like losing sleep over something that people prefer to watch TikTok or or watch mm-hmm. Facebook Reels yeah. than rather than you? Yeah. Why am I even doing this? And 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 you know, to be very honest, after and it's probably the first time I'm speaking publicly about this, after 15, 16 years of field work, I was just exhausted. I was you know, on the cusp of 40, um, I joined Al Jazeera in 2007 and it was my longest relationship by the end of it. And I thought, okay, I think it's time to take a break. And I needed, I needed to see the country from a distance, you know, I, the country I loved from a distance and I needed to a break. And so I took a sabbatical just after the 2022 elections. I went to Spain. I took my postgraduate degree and I thought at the time I said, what do I really want? I said, I just wanted an education that I've, I've always dreamed of over the past few years already for myself. And, and I did it. I, I took a break and it was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made, really. No regrets. Yeah. You know, Jam, I can uh, empathize with the, the feeling of burnout and uh, taking stock of uh, where you are. How do you accomplish what you dream about. And once you were, you were telling me that you, you found out that news reporting really isn't enough, that you want to do more. So tell us about your journey from news reporting to actually getting engaged with the people that you used to interview. Tell us about the journey of Sinagtala. How did that happen? From 2013, um, I mean, uh, Till up about 2017, there was, I like, I guess, a series of unprecedented conflict, both man-made and natural, right? So basically 70% of the time I was covering disasters. One time, my friend, I was in Davao, she's a fantastic friend of mine, and she basically said to me, do you realize what people say about you? And, 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 what the military say when they see you in the field? Because when one military officer basically said to me, when we see your mom arrive in the field, we're always afraid, like, what is going on? I've been the bearer of good news or like an omen to them. And my friend said, you've become what they call the queen of mayhem because you just do disasters. You just talk about conflict and after conflict. And so 
when military officers and even my friends of mine see me, like, why are you in Zamboanga? What's going to happen? And, you know, in a way they, they say to me in jest and I realized that, okay, this is what I've become basically. And one of the things that truly changed me was when I became a mom and I became a mom at 20, in 2014. I, I was pregnant in 2013 at the height of Typhoon Yolanda or Typhoon Haiyan. And, you know, I only had about three months of maternity leave. And, and I got three months because at that time there was only 60 days. Plus, I did not take a maternity break. I literally worked Friday <laughs> and on Sunday. And that Sunday, that weekend, I gave birth. So oh I saved up and managed to take three months off. But when I went back to the field, I was a completely changed person because every single child I saw in the field was my son. I was completely racked with guilt, you know, and I, I mentioned it to mom. I mean, it's this guilt about leaving my, my, my three month old to go, um, to a conflict zone. And then this guilt about leaving the people I interviewed to go back to the comforts of my home. So it, it, all of a sudden I felt and recognized, I guess, came to terms with the power and limits of journalism, which before that I knew. I was just young and I was restless and had so much energy and then realized, okay, why am I, what am I going to do with this boy? Um, and, um, and that's when I started to do unofficial quiet. Uh, we opened uh, a very first, I can never forget it. We opened a sort of toy library in, in Kayapukan in Basilan. And this is at the time there were a lot of boys who were orphaned by Abu Sayyaf. Um, oh yeah. Right. So at that time, Colonel Tiny Perez uh, was in charge of that brigade. And he said, Jam, we need books. And so we kind of just collected stuff and sent it. And then every single time there's a disaster, my friends are like, where can we send aid? And and it, by the end of it, I was coordinating aid. And in 2017, that that's when I really thought of setting up something permanent. Because um, Marawi was difficult because it was a five-month-long war. There was basically, for the first time, no access to the front lines. We were dependent on handouts from the military. And, you know, when, when you are dependent on handouts from the military, if you are a journalist, you'll have to question what sort of stories are you missing, right? So peripherally, you always have to look like this. If this is all I'm getting, then I'm missing something. And it was very frustrating because we were completely not allowed because of of the bombardment. And so I did... I, I went to the eastern part of Lake Lanao um, and I started to go to Boutique um, in some of the areas and encountered really, really difficult stories of civilians fleeing the conflict from the other mm -hmm. side of Lake Lanao to the other. And so we decided to open a crisis center for women because there was a an, um, an IDP center right at the, cent the cap Lanao capital. And so I, at the time, Zia Adyong, who was the spokesperson of um, the Marawi uh, mm -hmm. task force, I said, could you give me a space where we can just have these women come over and, and, and just, you know, we give them free meals. And that be that's the secret, you know, um, by the end of it, we opened the weaving center as bombs were falling. We were, you know, conducting psychosocial intervention, art and therapy classes. We're providing weaving trainings. We had a toy library um, at right at the heart of Lano. By the end of the conflict, we had seven toy libraries across Lano province. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was not sleeping, but it kind of provided a sense of proportion, you know, and it made me feel that somehow I was not, I was more useful 
you know, and 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 I, I and we still continue to do Sinagtala. After four years um, of work in Marawi, we decided to open a center um, in Sulu. And we have a very different program there. We work in Sulu with the wives, widows, daughters, and orphans of former combatants and slain rebels. And I don't like to use the word surrenderies, you know. It's not a Tausug mm-hmm. term that is often mm-hmm. appreciated. And I've told mm-hmm. people, don't use the word but former combatants, because there's no such thing as surrender for the Tausugs. Right, ma'am? <laughs> so um, so, so we, we, we did that, and it's been... Third, the third year since we, we started. And, and when I quit Daily News, I continued this work. And, and I, I love doing humanitarian work. I love project planning. I love organizing. And I, I am still on the ground. I am still having this con- direct interaction with women, you know, specifically women who are extremely marginalized. Um, the most marginalized, I think, in Sulu are the wives and the widows of, 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 of rebels because they really have the stigma and a lot of them don't even have government papers. And you guys are quite aware of the, of the stigma that they go through. So it's been, it's been that journey basically for Sinagdala. It's been, yeah. So, so now, Jam, you are a different kind of storyteller. Your storytelling now is more about the resilience of the communities that you work with, uh, their dreams and uh, and hopes. So that's, I mean, I can I can see how that is a perfect antidote to burnout from the the depths of negativity, right? So talking about the trauma to now being part of the recovery and uh, seeing the light go back into the eyes of these women. Oh, that's why you called it Sinagtala. Starlight. Right? Huh. Okay, now I get it, Jam. I'm so slow today, I guess. <laughs> so Starlight means, you know, um, and we consider the women and the children basically the light that brines in, in a place that's often dark and desolate. And so initially it was Tala. And my partner at the time said, Jam, it's better when you call it Sinagtala. It's a very old um, Tagalog word, and I, I think I love it. It's, it's easy to pronounce as well. So it's very meaningful. And I think I, I wanted that. to add, I think that a lot of journalists, um, we don't recognize that when we do take a break and everything, that we, we don't have time to deal with our own trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Sinagtala helped me deal with with that sort of, not just the burnout, but the trauma that you don't get to deal with. There is no time for journalists to take a break and say, you can't tell your editors, I'm taking two months off because I'm having a mental breakdown. You don't get mental breakdowns. You can't afford mental breakdowns, especially if you're the only correspondent in the country. And when you're a mom, that changes the whole thing as well. So when I'm coming from a landslide, coverage for 10 days and I don't I don't have two days to de- decompress and to go through debriefing I when I as soon as I land in Manila I'm a mother and I need to completely use a different channel in my head and 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 set aside all of the issues that I've had to deal with uh, burnout exhaustion grief you know um for for other women and and it takes a while and and um and rest is important. And, and another exposure is important, not just in journalism. 
you know, you know what, Jam, this is the first um, real conversation that I've had with um, a journalist and seeing the other side. Because, you know, Ayesa and, and I, when we interact with journalists, we're being asked our opinions. And then they, you know, they create news, they air it, and, uh, you know, they may have a storyline, they may have like a certain angle that they want to present, but that's the end of it. You never see how the news they're covering affects their their own thinking, their own view of the world. In Ayesa, hearing the Jam's uh, story reminds me really of all the women from conflict areas that we've, be, that we've interviewed. The, the mm-hmm. feeling of frustration when, right. when you see that no matter how hard you try, it's not really moving. Mm, and the right. feeling of happiness when they they find some other way, right, of um, making a positive impact on their community. Mm-hmm. And I keep wondering, Jam, um, do you think you'd be able to go back to news reporting and keep Sinagtala and uh, maintain a, a balance? Or you're not there yet? You're not thinking about that yet? I just finished a documentary for Al Jazeera, actually, um, and I just finished one um, in Sulu, and I was I was there two months ago for three weeks, and uh, it's an exciting project. It's completely online, and I do. One of the reasons why I had to quit Daily News is because I wanted to spend more time with my family. My son, at the time when I quit news, was seven, and um, I needed to spend time. And I think if I'm a journalist, and I my son not, and for example. If he ended up not loving, you know, reading and books, then I, mm. I failed completely in my influence. And, and so I needed to take that break also for my kid, right? And and for my family, for my marriage. It's it's important. A lot of journalists, if you can look at the statistics, there must be somewhere that shows the statistics of how many end up managing to marry or end up mm. managing to stay married because it's 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 like working working as a volunteer, you know, or working for the ICRC, it's right. difficult to keep relationships and, and something has to give. And at some point you need to be able to, to say, okay, now is the time for this. And now is the time to take a step back, to see everything peripherally, to contribute differently and to not also abandon or neglect your own family. This is really, you know, uh, a very personal interview that we're having here. In Honestly, I don't think I've ever done it and before. And we are really so thankful that you know you are, you are sharing, you know, uh, your, you know, uh, some extent your personal life and experience as a mother because these these are the kinds of stories that our audience should you should hear, you know, that after all, you know, as journalists, as uh, peace builders, you know, any type of work that we do, especially as women, you know, uh, we cannot really, you know, be working as robots. You know, we, we are feeling persons and we also take in all these experiences as part of our lifelong commitment you know, as women. And I think that's what makes women very powerful <laughs> when we when we do the kind of work that we do because it's really coming from our own family and personal values. So for... Uh, before we, you know, wrap up, Jam, uh, I'd like to remind also our audience, perhaps some of them 
may have some questions or comments in today's episode, you can email us at shetalkspace at gmail.com. And maybe you would like to get in touch with Jam. Or if there are any suggestions for our future episodes, you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So again, Jam, thank you so much for sharing with us, you know, all your stories today. And it's my first time meeting you. As I said earlier, I'm really very proud that, you know, I see you on television and I hope you continue to do the work. Maybe not as a full-time journalist, but recently you've been doing investigative journalism and documentaries. I'm really looking forward to watch uh, more of your work, Jam. It's been an honor to to speak to both of you, ma'am. Thank you so much for having me. And before we go, Jam, perhaps you would like to share a message to to our listeners. I guess I can only speak from my experience. I think it's important that um, we that we allow ourselves to feel frustrated. That it's okay to feel frustrated, but to also remind ourselves. You know, it's hard to love so many things at the same time. It's hard to love your family, your country, your fellow countrymen, because there's only, there's just you, right? And again, you get kind of torn, pulled into different directions. Recognizing that it's okay to be frustrated is is important, but also recognizing that that feeling is not permanent um, and that that nothing is ever permanent, even even the work that we do. And that we, and when we are given an opportunity to serve the public, whether it's in a very public way or manner like I do or research like the academe or logistics or, you know, um, negotiations, uh, backdoor negotiations, it's remember that it is an honor to, to be able to do that, to be, to be able to have work that matters, work that, that has meaning and, and to just focus on the job, you know, and give yourself the break that you need. And most importantly, to be just be kind to yourself. I think that's a lesson that we don't really, we're not really taught, um, especially my generation, right? We, we are taught to, to work hard, especially if you're a woman and you're Filipino or Asian and you work for an international organization, whether it's in journalism or the UN, you know, you have to work just as hard to be, to prove that you're just as good three times as hard, I guess. Um, and, and to know that, that you don't have to endure. As, as, as much as we, we used to. I guess that would be it. And I, I wish the very best for everyone. Thank you so much. Mabuhay. Thank you, Jam. Dear listeners, that was uh, Jamila Alindogan of Al Jazeera. And now the driver behind Sinagtala, Starlight, that brings light into the hearts of uh, women and children in conflict areas. Thank you for joining us for this really interesting conversation on the journey of a reporter who covered the trauma of war and conflict to become a bringer of hope and somebody who tries to bring more resilience to communities, especially women and children. So thank you so much, Jam, for joining us. And dear listeners, this is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying bye for now and join us again for the next episode. Ayesa? 
again, we'd like to express our warm uh, gratitude and applause to Jamila Alindogan for being, um, uh, you know, uh, as Amina said, you know, from a correspondent, from a journalist, uh, to becoming a humanitarian, you know, and a developmental uh, development or uh, development uh, leader herself. So next time again at She Talks Peace, we hope that you will join us for more of our conversations with more women leaders. Bye, Amina. Bye, Ayesa. Bye, Jam. She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.